Welcome to Practicing Clinicians Exchange Podcast, CHEST Annual Meeting 2021 Conference Coverage. This is one of two podcasts summarizing practice-changing abstracts that were recently presented at the CHEST 2021 Annual Meeting in October. My name is January Jill Ogoy. I'm an advanced practice provider in clinical practice with pulmonary and critical care medicine at Virginia Mason Franciscan Health in Tacoma, Washington and I'll be your moderator for the podcast. Joining us is Tish Tate, a pulmonology advanced practice clinician who practices at the Lung Associates of Sarasota and Sarasota, Florida. In this podcast, we'll provide clinical perspective on selected practice-changing abstracts covering a variety of topics from the CHESS 2021 annual meeting. This program is developed in partnership with the Association of Pulmonary Advanced Practice Providers and is supported by the educational grants from Italian Pharmaceuticals U.S. Division of Janssen Pharmaceuticals and Milan Specialty LT. This program is provided by Practicing Clinicians Exchange for 0.25 ANCC and AAPA credits with 0.25 credits applicable for pharmacology credit for NPs. To receive credit for this program, go to pce.is forward slash chest. The learning objectives for today's podcast include identifying recent practice-changing data across major pulmonary and critical care conditions, formulating strategies for the management and monitoring of patients with pulmonary conditions based on the most current efficacy and safety evidence. So let's get right to it then. I love that we can start our discussion on what I would consider as one of the most overwhelming yet very important topic on pulmonary hypertension. Tish, what is the newest data on idiopathic pulmonary hypertension? Jill, thank you. Pulmonary hypertension is usually very difficult because it's not seen by a lot of providers. There are five groups of pulmonary hypertension defined by the World Health Organization. Uh, Idiopathic pulmonary hypertension is one that is, we don't have a really good reason for or cause, hence the idiopathic portion. Rizvi and colleagues The author of this study presented an abstract at CHEST discussing the hospitalizations of idiopathic pulmonary hypertension in the U.S. It was a national perspective going between 2007 and 2017. Um, It was retrospective. They obtained data from the nationwide inpatient sample database, looking at patients 18 and older with the DRG of idiopathic pulmonary hypertension. There were some definitely very interesting data that they were able to obtain. Between 2007 and 2017, hospitalizations for idiopathic pulmonary hypertension actually decreased. Um, It was at 0.05 in 2007 and it went down to 0.03% in 2017. Over that, they also looked at all-cause mortality during that same timeframe in the same age population. Um, And it initially in 2007 was 6.4% and down to 2017, it went down to 4.8%. So there was a significant change in both hospitalizations and mortality of this particular population during that timeframe. However, it's interesting to note that the the hospitalizations decreased and um, the mortality decreased, but the cost of the care almost doubled during that timeframe which is very, it's very interesting that, you know, we're, we're getting better. However, we're, we're spending more of our healthcare dollars treating this, um, which tells me in part, these patients most likely are lasting a little bit longer than they were previously. So that was definitely a, an important take-home point over the last several years. But that's great. You know, it, 
probably also means we're doing a better job at diagnosing and catching these uh, folks with pulmonary hypertension. And based on these results, you know, there was a statistically significant decrease, as you mentioned, in both the absolute number of IPAH hospitalizations and total all-cost mortality related to this. So for our colleagues in primary care and pulmonary specialty groups, what's a good source for a definition of pulmonary hypertension that you would recommend to use since early recognition is key to timely management of IPIH? Definitely. Early early diagnosis is key to managing these patients uh, much better. Um, there's actually quite a few sources out there. NIH and CDC both have some uh, good initial things because, as we all know, patients are, they're going to look for the first place to go try and find this as you're beginning to work them up and you tell them this is a possibility. So I would definitely recommend looking at the information they have. Um, Mayo Clinic has some good availabilities online for information as well as CHEST. Um, has some excellent CEUs and more information on treating uh, pulmonary hypertension and diagnosing it as well. Great. So when would you recommend a referral to a pulmonary hypertension specialist? That's key because nobody wants to send patients to a referral area if, A, they don't have anybody available or, you know, they send every patient that they see because they're short of breath. So you definitely have to work them up a little bit. The easiest, most cost-effective thing initially is a, an echocardiogram. Um, an echocardiogram performed by an excellent clinician can at least give you an idea of whether or not they're even a category. If their pulmonary pressure is five, no, I wouldn't send them. But if you're starting to get in the area where your pulmonary pressures are starting to be elevated in the 2025 range, it needs to be considered knowing that an echocardiogram is not the gold standard and more testing would need to be done. Um, and not everybody has those things available. So being aware that the more rural areas may not have the same resources and would have to put the patients out going to a further area, I would definitely try and get at least an echocardiogram and then look at an area that has a pulmonary hypertension specialist or a tertiary center, which would have more resources than um, just a small area and institution. Wonderful insights on pulmonary hypertension. It really is such a difficult subject to even begin diagnosing. In summary, timely and appropriate recognition of pulmonary hypertension has been shown to reduce hospitalization and all-cost mortality related to this. The more we know about this, the more we become comfortable at diagnosing and properly managing this condition. Now on to a controversial yet important topic on the use of combination inhalers among our COPD patients. The gold guidelines have become the fulcrum that helps clinicians decide on which bronchodilators and the combination of any one of these may help with preventing future exacerbations. These bronchodilators include the long-acting muscarinic agents, or LAMA agents, long-acting beta agonist, or LABA agents, and inhaled corticosteroids, or ICS. In this next discussion, we will be tackling the comparative effectiveness of the use of LAMA-LABA versus ICS-LABA agents towards the reduction of COPD exacerbation and illness with pneumonia. So thank you, Jill. Uh... COPD is one of the bread and butter of pulmonary medicine, whether you're an inpatient provider or an outpatient provider, we see a fair portion of these patients and the goal of them is to keep them out of the hospital and as active as possible. So Feldman and colleagues submitted an abstract that was a observational cohort study looking at patients with a mean age of 70 years and 47% of those were female. Of those that they looked at, they looked at patients who were taking a LAMA-LABA um, 
and they found that those had a 10% reduction in their first to moderate to severe COPD exacerbation versus those who were taking an ICS or LABA, which is important as it goes along with the gold standards and the guidelines that we've been using as an outpatient. It continues to reiterate staying with the guidelines is key. And when we alter from those, our patient outcomes aren't as well. So keeping in with those guidelines, we are able to keep patients out of the hospital and more mobile, um, which again, preserves their quality of life. Tish, I'd like to do a quick review of our gold guidelines in which patients qualify for a prescription with LAMA-LABA or ICS-LABA combination. I'm assuming that based on the population of subjects that were involved in this observational cohort study, that we are referring to patients who belong or have been recently diagnosed to be in the group D classification of the gold criteria. That's very important, Jill, knowing which patient follows in which category. Um, initially, this can be very overwhelming to providers not knowing which patient files in which category. Based on gold criteria, a patient with more than two exacerbations or one hospitalization and a CAT score greater than 10 with an MRC score greater than two would be a D category patient. Um, these patients are your riskier patients. They have more frequent hospitalizations, et cetera. So putting them on the proper regimen is key to keep them well and out of the hospital and with fewer and less frequent exacerbations. It's key to know that those patients, if, the, if this is the first time you're seeing them, they fall in that category that you definitely put them on the, the proper regimen. Um, and you need to continue to reiterate and go over and ask these patients how they're feeling, how many exacerbations have they had? Are they sticking with their regimens? This is key to keep them as well as possible and make sure you're prescribing the right medication for the right patient in the right situation. I understand that using the gold group classification is primarily for initiating treatment therapy. How do I escalate or de-escalate based on symptoms and exacerbations? And is there a useful biomarker to guide therapy? Providers should reevaluate where the patient is at every visit. Um, when they come in, we should fill out these forms. We should ask them how they're feeling, how many symptoms they've had, how many exacerbations they have had, have they had any hospitalizations? Unfortunately, we may not always know these things prior to their visit. You may not know that they had a hospitalization when they were on vacation and they didn't tell you. So these are key things to ask at every patient's visit to evaluate them. In addition, you need to ask them their cough their quality of sputum for those patients who have frequent sputum. If they're always green and they're still green, I wouldn't do anything different. Um, and the other things you need to add are eosinophil um, blood counts. Adding a CBC may help guide therapy. The presence of an eosinophil in the laboratory studies may help you determine whether or not glucocorticosteroids would be effective for these patients. Um, and also if their EO count is low, it's a predictor that the ICS may not help them much and also may increase their risk of pneumonia. So again, back to the gold standards, if we follow those and ask our patients at every visit, we will actually keep them safer and provide them with better relief and medication adherence overall. Thank you, Tish, for a wonderful review on the gold guidance. COPD certainly continues to be a worldwide disease problem. It remains as one of the top three causes of death worldwide based on the recent cold 2021 report. Hence, as clinicians, we really need to keep working at properly managing these patients in whom the use of combination bronchodilators continue to be challenging, particularly with its underuse among our gold D patient. So moving along to our next hot topic, which will be a great subject to close out our podcast today, is talking about COVID-19 pneumonia. 
and the use of CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure. COVID-19 has truly become a disease to reckon with as to this day, we are still trying to understand how this disease continues to evolve and what else in our armaments can be used that can positively impact addressing the multitude of problems associated with it. One thing that we have been utilizing is CPAP to stave off intubation and likely transfer to the ICU. Yes, Jill, COVID has become quite the hot topic um, and it was no different at CHESS this year. I can't tell you how many topics and conversations that we saw about COVID-19, the appropriate management, and what is really the best case and how do we manage these patients. Um, Opcove and colleagues had a um, retrospective trial where they looked at patients who had COVID-19, pneumonitis, and respiratory failure, and they looked at them to decide which one was did better, whether or not they had CPAP versus intubation. Um, it was not a very large sample size. Um, it was only an N of 28. However, I think it brings to show us that we probably should have more information and data research on this. They did exclude notably patients on BiPAP, which is a big key difference um, when you're looking at patients in this particular population. Um, some pair riders automatically went to BiPAP. So those were excluded from this particular data. They found that the 30 to 90 day outcomes, which are things that we use key in the ICU, um, using CPAP for COVID pneumonia, um, were fairly favorable. However, a third of them did require home oxygen, indicating that they had a prolonged recovery phase of respiratory failure, um, which unfortunately is something that we've seen a fair amount with COVID patients that um, whether or not they required ICU or CPAP, the, the long recovery phase of these patients, it may tell more how sick they were and um, overall prior even to coming in. So there's, there's a lot of good data for this. I think more research needs to be done. Um, I'm hoping to see more in the future on really the best way to manage these patients. Although, as you mentioned, you know, the sample size may be small, any tool we can use to halt the progression of COVID-19 among non-intubated patients is still promising. So this study mentioned that one-third of patients require home oxygen. What can you tell us about acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS, and why is it that some patients require home oxygen? So ARDS is a unfortunate symptom of a much larger issue. We've known about ARDS for many years in the pulmonary critical care world because it's been associated with a variety of insults. Anytime the body had a significant pulmonary insult, the lungs became stiff and fibrotic. Um, it's characterized by rapidly progressing dyspnea and hypoxemia despite the amount of oxygen you're giving them. Um, and it's defined as a PO2-FiO2 ratio of less than 300. In this case, I can see an image go from a beautiful clear lungs in someone who's just a little sick to a full whited out lungs with lungs that are very stiff and fibrotic in unfortunately very rapid amount of time. I've seen it happen in less than 12 hours. Um, these patients are unfortunately no longer able to absorb oxygen and perfuse as they did before. When I describe it to patients and family members, I the best example I've always used is a dried kitchen sponge. It can absorb what they need. And that's unfortunately where these patients are for giving them everything they can, but their, their body is no longer able to participate in the way that we, we would like it to. Such a really bad disease process. And in, for COVID to end up in, in ARDS is one of the things that we want to avoid and want to prevent. And hence, you know, CPAP is something that we definitely need to consider using as clinicians taking care of COVID patients. 
Cool. Well, we covered quite a number of really relevant topics today, ranging from the importance of recognizing and treating pulmonary hypertension in a timely manner, discerning how impactful it is to initiate and prescribe the appropriate combination bronchodilator inhaler among our COPD patients, and lastly, the promising effect of utilizing continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP, among our COVID-19 patients who develop into ARDS or acute respiratory distress a lot to digest and certainly a lot more to look forward to as more advances in medicine and science occur. So thank you, Tish, for gracing us with your knowledge and expertise today. We thank PCE for giving us this opportunity to talk about relevant topics that impact our day-to-day practice as clinicians. And lastly, we thank you all our listeners who joined us in this never-ending journey of learning and growth. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and invite you to listen to our other podcast covering additional practice-changing abstracts from the CHESS 2021 annual meeting if you have not done so already. Please visit pce.is forward slash chess to take the post-test and claim your credit for this activity.